0: The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm the host of the podcast, also Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the school. And I have with me uh, by Zoom today, Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you, Zach. This is always a fun time.
0: It really is. We are today going to work through some questions from our listeners as part of our recurring faith and practice segment. And we have a good uh, group of questions, some of which are very timely for the season, especially as different listeners have been hearing sermons from Isaiah 9 and uh, the different uh, passages treating Christ's first coming and Advent and Incarnation. Um, But before we dive into these questions, I just want to encourage our listeners, uh, as you're considering your year-end giving in these last couple days of the year, please remember Greenville Seminary. The Lord has been very kind to us. We've grown by leaps and bounds. We have some very um, exciting additions to our administration and faculty coming up in the new year with Pat Daly and Bill Van Dudaward joining us here at the school. So there's really never been a better time to support Greenville Seminary And I just warmly invite you to visit gpds.edu slash donate to make your gift today or to send in your gift by mail to P.O. Box 690, Taylor, South Carolina, 29687 before the end of the year so that you can get that tax advantage for 2021. Uh, But let's uh, let's get into our questions. Dr. Piper, would you open us with a word of prayer, please? Glad to.
1: Almighty and glorious God in heaven, we bless your name for you, the God of all wisdom, truth. You are the God who is light. We thank you that God the Spirit has inspired men of old to write your words exactly and truly in your word and promised then to be our teacher. Christ, our prophet, reveals to us your will for our salvation through his word and spirit. And so we approach this task today, Lord, not in Uh, Dependence upon the flesh are the strength of men or their minds, but in dependence upon the Spirit that you will be glorified, Lord, in that which is said. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.
0: Thank you, Dr. Piper. We have um, our first question from two dear sisters in Christ, Brenda Benson of Greer, South Carolina, who works here at the seminary, and Joanne Holm of Vasteras Sweden, who is a close friend of the seminaries, and they've asked uh, this question, some churches have taken a specific stand or have offered advice to their congregations on vaccines and masks. Is there a theological reason why many Reformed pastors have not done this?
1: Thank you all for the question. Uh, The simple answer is the doctrine of the spirituality of the church. Now, I can't speak for all uh, Reformed pastors, but I can speak from my own convictions uh, about this. Um, The Bible tells me nothing about either one of these issues, uh, vaccinations or masks. I think there is, uh, obviously, with the use, uh, at least in very early development, of some... um, aborted fetal uh, cells in the in the development of uh, these vaccinations that uh, there are some people who have uh, a conscious issues about the vaccination because of that, of course, uh, so many of the products that we use today uh, were also developed in the same manner and uh, probably as far back as that. So other Christians uh um, would not and I think we have to respect each other's consciences with respect to that but because it is a conscience issue I don't think the church should uh, enter in at that point and say because a few iterations back fetal cells were used the development of these what became these vaccinations that we shouldn't use them um, I think the church could help people think through the pros and cons of that but beyond that um, It's not the church's responsibility to tell people uh, to be vaccinated or not to be vaccinated. There's such a plethora of opinions about vaccinations and masks um, that, again, we have to respect people's uh, consciences. Our church has never required masks, and we take a pretty just corporate stand in terms of the freedom of what we're doing uh, in worship. Uh, but um, I'll wear a mask if I go to a place that requires a mask to be worn uh, out of politeness, out of loving uh, my brother or sister um, that feels threatened if I don't wear a mask. I don't think it's the church's responsibility to say, be vaccinated, wear a mask, or don't be vaccinated and don't wear a mask." simply because it's not an issue that the Bible deals with. So anyway, that's why, at least in some cases, uh, a pastor like me who has a very high view of the spirituality of the church is not going to um, uh, tell people not to be vaccinated or be vaccinated, not to wear a mask or wear a mask.
0: Yeah. Well, I appreciate your input on that. I mean, this is a delicate issue, and and it's it's interesting. I unlike anything else, at least in my lifetime, that has taken place in the public square, de- um, affecting so many people. Um, unlike any other issue, I've seen theological arguments on all sides of uh, of kind of the political social um, spectrum, and so it's difficult to sort out. I can imagine. Uh, are people coming to us, and I mean that broadly—not just at our church, but just at any church—coming um, to, to their pastors and, and asking for theological and biblical insight, uh, dealing specifically with wearing surgical masks in public and whether or not to get a particular vaccine. Which,
1: yeah, and I'm often asked the question, even by people at Antioch.
0: But uh, and I will say to them what
1: I've just said now: uh, Here's the pros and cons. Uh, you need to make a decision. Now, the one place where the church, I think, rightly has done something, if we had a member who had a conscience problem about vaccination, a genuine conscience problem about vaccination because of the fetal um, tissue, and they're willing to research what other products they're using uh, as well and try to get some consistency there, but I would be willing to write the letter for them that uh, our church uh, is strongly opposed to any um, medical research or development that uses aborted fetal tissue. Uh, and so I think that, uh, but then I do know for another church here in town, and maybe we had a question on faith and practice, I think. I know I had the question, and that is, does a, can a session uh, make it a conscience issue about vaccinations on any other ground? And I say no, because, again, the Bible is not speaking... Uh, to it. So there's some people have asked their sessions just to write a letter that this is a conscience problem, but it wasn't because of the development, of the, it was because of the mandated vaccination. And I might have a conscience problem about mandated vaccinations, but I'm sure not going to uh, make that a church issue.
0: Yeah. These are delicate, uh, delicate concerns, but I uh, appreciate the question, Brenda and Joanne. Thank you very much for sending it in. I hope that this answer was helpful to you as you think through the issue and, and different responses to the issue that, that we're seeing in the evangelical world. Uh, our next uh, series of questions, we got three uh, submitted anonymously. One's a follow-up from a previous faith and practice where we fielded a question from a young couple seeking to reconcile divergent views on Sabbath-keeping And listeners may recall that the husband in this scenario, or the soon-to-be husband, has a stricter practice of Sabbath-keeping than his soon-to-be wife. And so this listener asks, what advice would you give if the tables were turned, if the wife had a stricter practice of Sabbath-keeping than the husband?
1: Yeah, that's a very useful question. Um, and I've, I've tried to think through a number of principles with respect to this. I'll just start out with the simplest and that is you don't nag. Um, We Try to have uh, decent biblical discussions with him. And if he is a godly man, he's going to uh, listen uh, to you and to your arguments and not think that because he's the husband, he has no need uh, to do so. He does have a responsibility to do so. And you then want to model uh, in your own practice and attitude, the joy of the Sabbath. Now, th- the big issue would come down to: the husband asks you to do something, or the children to do something that would be contrary to what you believe the Bible teaches. At that point, then uh, Peter's principle is: we must obey God and not man. In a in a quiet and humble way, uh, a wife would have to say, "I'm sorry." That's a sin. In the same way if he asked her to lie on the income taxes or to watch pornography or, or anything else that he might do uh, that would uh, violate her conscience with respect the requirements of the word of God, she then would have to take for herself and for her children uh, a humble uh, role of obeying God and not man, making it constantly a matter of prayer uh, that God would uh, bring them up to one mind and that the husband would not Um, seek to cause her to compromise
0: so if he asked for example or said that he uh, had plans to take the family out to either an amusement park on Sundays or a movie or a restaurant uh, the wife could say not only for herself but even for the children no we are not going to do that right that uh, that's that is a difficult thing and you know we've run into this in my own family not so much between husband and wife but between uh, us and extended family members whom we love we want to spend time with and we typically propose an alternative and so this is my input into the advice my uh, the alternative would be well rather than going out why don't we come over why don't you come over to my my house? We have we have supper ready, or we had plans to have you yeah, over. Yeah, that's,
1: that's easier to do in that context, yeah. to have alternatives. We do try to do that with family. Yeah, being um,
0: proactive even.
1: But in the, um, you know, he doesn't want the alternative. He already knows what the alternative is, and he does not want the yep. alternative. So you've got to put it in the categories. The fourth commandment, uh, as or more serious than... Uh, the seventh commandment, or the uh, the eighth commandment—that's why I use the two examples of pornography or cheating in line. Well, it is. It's the first table of the law, and a lot of our heartburn would dissipate if we would realize this is the first table of the law. And even though it is so greatly neglected in the culture and in the church, it is at the level of commandments one through three. Yeah, And that's why we're going to have to take those kind of stands. Now, they're Christians, they're in a church, which means that it ought to go to the session uh, at that point uh, if there becomes a real uh, uh, sturdy disagreement about it.
0: You know, that's a really good point, at least in terms of how the question was posed. It is assuming that both parties here in the disagreement are Christians and that you can um, appeal... To the man's right. love of God and understanding of Scripture and desire to be in conformity with God's law, and and the like, um, it's a much more difficult situation if uh, if the husband is not a believer and is even hard-hearted against the wife's desire to keep God's law and is seeking creatively to cause her to stumble and subvert it. Um, now that's a that's a really a deplorable um, condition to be in in a very sad uh, situation so anyway um, we could always field follow-ups on that and uh, typically we do have at least one question on the sabbath each episode here on faith in practice <laughs> which is fine it's an important issue and one that's been under attack for a couple centuries now in our culture our next question is um, and again from anonymous it's dealing with a text and i'm sure Uh, the, the person heard recently in, uh, in his church in Isaiah nine, six, the promised child, which Isaiah prophesies shall be born to us is likewise prophesied to be called the following names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father and Prince of peace. If the child is in fact Christ Jesus, and I believe that he is, then three of these titles make perfect sense. He is both wonderful in all his ways and our great counselor by his word and spirit. He is mighty God, being the son of God and second person of the Godhead, sharing the same nature with the Father and the Spirit, being equal in power and glory to them. He is prince of peace in that peace cannot be known apart from savingly knowing him, but the fourth title or name, Eternal Father, is more difficult for me to reconcile with whom I understand Christ as Son to be. Can you explain how Jesus Christ is, quote, Eternal Father, end quote, in connection to Isaiah
1: 9-6? Yes. Uh, thank you for the question. It's a very uh, useful one, grasping that uh, scripture. And I'm sure a lot of people, even as they've read this through the years, would would wonder. Uh, What's not being said is that in terms of his personal attributes, God the Son is never referred to as Father. It's very important, and this is spelled out in our standards, that the Father alone is Father, the Son is not Father, the Spirit is not Father, the Son alone is Son, the Father is not Son, the Spirit is not Son, and of course, the Spirit alone is Spirit, the Father and the Son are not Spirit. And that refers to their uh, eternal uh, relationship in their personal properties as the three persons of the Godhead. But of course the Bible uses father in other ways, as we do in our own culture. We'll speak of George Washington as the father of our country. And that means he is in one sense, um, uh, the founder of of much that is important to us. We'll speak of the father of an extended household, uh, in, in the proper sense, the patriarch who's head of the clan. And in these ways, the savior, in fact, is uh, father. Um, he, and he is eternal father because he's been appointed from eternity uh, to uh, be the founder of the church. And as the founder of the church, he's the head of the church. He's the protector of the church. Um, uh, we are his, his children and his bride. And so it's in that way, in terms of his relationship to the Church, that he who, in whom we were eternally chosen and who will keep us eternally under his care, that he is referred to then as the Eternal Father.
0: Thank you, Dr. Piper. That's really helpful. So when we we consider, we can call even Jesus Christ Eternal Father in the sense that he is federal head over the elect just as Adam was federal head.
1: We would never address him that way in prayer. Now, we can address him as wonderful counselor and mighty God. We would address him as the one who's been appointed for us from eternity to be our our head, our protector.
0: That's good. Thank you. And then our last anonymous question for this episode, I have heard you discuss three terms relating to biblical worship, elements, circumstances, and forms. Would you please define each of these terms and set them in relation to one another. And I, I'm going to take this, Dr. P., as being kind of quick, to the point, clear distinctions. Yeah,
1: okay. The, uh, the elements are those things in worship which we offer to God as acts of worship. So the use of the word read, uh, recited, preached, confessed— all the different aspects of prayer, uh, singing, uh, and uh, I would say the offering and and the sacraments and occasionally then vows. Um, These then must be uh, revealed to us by God that these are things he wants in worship. He does that either explicitly or by uh, a good theological inference or proved example. Circumstances, if you think the word itself, that which stands around, are the things that enable us to perform the elements of worship. And just as any group, when it meets together for a group activity, has certain necessary things, so it is true when the church gathers to worship. A meeting place, a time, a length of service— Uh, And then the accoutrements, the the furnishings of the room, the the sound system. Are we going to use a PowerPoint for the hymns? Are we going to have hymn books or hymns printed in the bulletin? All these things that enable us to uh, worship God are things that are not revealed in Scripture, but are appropriate in all cultures for doing these things. Those are circumstances, and they're things about which Scripture is silent." Then there are the forms, and the forms have to do with the organization and content of the elements. So, for example, the Westminster Standards refer to the Lord's Prayer as the form of prayer that our Savior has given to us. And these are words, actually, uh, that are said in the Standards that may be an outline for prayer, or actually may be used themselves as prayer. So, form would include uh, the content of our singing, content of our prayers, the content of uh, our preaching. And forms then would include um, element uh, or things in worship, such as posture and liturgy, that are in fact revealed in Scripture, but are not mandatory. So, Calvin addresses this quite well. I think it's in chapter 10 of book four. And he talks about kneeling, he talks there about head coverings, which he points out are not uh, required, they're revealed postures in worship, but we're not sinning if we don't do those. So the postures of standing or kneeling uh, for prayer, uh, standing for reading of scripture, the corporate amen, um, hands extended from waist to receive the benediction, these are, are... are postures for which there are biblical examples, but we're not required to do them. So I put that under form because circumstances are not revealed in scripture, forms are. Now the same in terms of how we order our worship, which we call liturgy, that's a form. We're not to do anything in worship that uh, is not in scripture, but do um, do we sing here? And do we have confession of sin there? How do we put the service together? Is it a covenantal dialogue, or is it a very simple prayer, psalm, scripture reading, psalm, sermon, psalm, benediction? Um, as long as the elements are there, we do have biblical patterns. How to how to order them, but we have no requirements.
0: Our next question is a follow-up from uh, either the last episode or two episodes ago from William Tejeda of San Antonio, Texas. He says, should we use Jesus's discussion with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, specifically the phrase about being born again, as a format for evangelism? It seems the apostolic examples are full of, quote, repent and be baptized, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, or other forms of Christ is crucified for sinners, now believe on him, rest in him, receive him by faith. Do we not offer... To the lost, as the marrow man, I believe, said, Christ is dead for you, and leave the response and results to God. Of course, we know that the Spirit is the one who will give life, but does the recipient have to know that he or she must be born again in order to respond? Is this pattern in Scripture besides in John 3? I see the offer of the gospel go out, and one is reborn without perhaps understanding that he or she was reborn. I've generally taken John 3 to be a specific challenge or correction to a teacher of Israel, not a method of evangelism and then uh, he adds another pastor used the analogy of babies not understanding how they are born until later in life and texts like john 3 and ephesians 1 and 2 are meant to unfold the story of one's rebirth so that they give god all the glory for their salvation so my understanding of this question is can we use the language of be born again or you must be born again in our evangelism or is it solely to be used in discipleship as we help Christians then grow in their understanding of what exactly transpired in their conversion.
1: Thank you, William.
0: Uh, I think part of the problem is even
1: thinking in terms of a method of evangelism. If we look at our Savior and how he dealt with different people, the uh, Syrophoenician woman, he used election. With Nicodemus, he used uh, the necessity of being born again. With others, he said, "Come unto me, all ye that labour and heavy laden, and I will give you rest." And what we learn from the Savior, and even uh, from looking at the sermons of the apostles and such, and the epistles, is there's not any one way to begin with a person or one place. It always, in terms of of uh, who that person was and what were they assuming. Uh, So in William Perkins' Art of Prophesying, as he discusses preaching the gospel, he'll talk about different types of hearers and how we would approach each one differently. So a proud, self-righteous person uh, needs to be told as part of law that they cannot on their own come to God, that they're damned, Um, and unless God has mercy on them, uh, they will be lost forever forever. Now, when I preach that, I also say, now, you're not waiting for something to happen to you. This is what God declares he must do. You cry out to God to have mercy on you. And it, There's a tension there. But uh, I think that some of the greatest evangelistic preachers did preach this truth as well as the other simple commandments to, uh, to believe on Christ. So uh, I do it all, uh, depending on uh, to whom I'm speaking and, and the text. Uh, and don't try to get locked into one particular way. Sometimes you'll deal more with law, Um, sometimes a little bit on law, a lot on the free offer or whatever. Now, just as an aside, I'm not comfortable with the Men." Christ is dead for you. Uh, I just like to say Christ died for sinners, and uh, you're a sinner. Uh, If you repent and believe, then you'll have full salvation.
0: You know, something that strikes me, I've done this in one-on-one conversations where I've thought it would be helpful and appropriate, um, particularly with those who who claim to know Christ and yet don't show forth fruit in their lives. I ask point blank, do you believe that you're born again?
1: You know, that's important. And this came to me when I was over in Hungary, uh, I guess it's been two years now, um, because in one sense, Hungary's a lot like the Bible Belt in the South. Everybody's a member of the Reformed Church, not everybody, a lot of people. And it occurred to me, that is the best question there. That's the best question here. Not are you a Christian, uh, but have you been born again? And then you'll get a raised eyebrow. It's just What do you mean? And then you can open up that whole thing. So I think it's a very good question, particularly in places where we live
0: yeah yeah and you know here in the west i don't know what it's like in hungary I mean, that is part of the west but here in america the phrase or the title born again evangelical christian is one that's bandied about quite a bit in the news media so even if you you could say do you know have you been reborn have you been born from above have you experienced the spiritual rebirth of a of, of a new heart you know using other biblical language to hit at the same truth, right? So that right. you're not, you know, just running over stale language that is clouded in um, confusion. Yeah. But born again's fine. I mean, that that's either born a, born from above or born again is what it says in John three. But I, I mean, for what it's worth, and Doctor Piper's answer was much more comprehensive. But um, William, I would say that it is appropriate to go to John three in evangelistic conversations and even in evangelistic preaching, and um in that sense i then would would share or hold in common uh, that practice with whitfield and edwards though certainly not with the same wonderful effects <laughs> or even boldness that those men had but uh they certainly would put that need to be born again in front of their you see it's, it's again very important
1: again. that people realize that they can't bargain with god i mean sometimes this free offer of the gospel um in certain hearers, simply reinforces their sense of independence, yeah, and uh, this is it's in a sense you could say it's preaching to the law. It's bringing them to a point to understand, I can't do anything. I am helpless. and yeah. then they'll cry out to God.
0: yeah. I mean, part of the free offer is not just a, an invitation and a pleading and um, but but is also a command. Compel right. them to come in, you know, like the frame the famous sermon from Spurgeon on on uh, the passage from Luke in the parable, compelled them to come in to the wedding feast. Um, that is an aspect of bringing the law to bear, telling them they must, but they can't, but God can. Right. Um, all right. We're going to move on. That I, I've just read two books recently on the free offer, so I was excited to get that question. Thank you, William. Our next question comes from Jordan A-trip, I think. I apologize if I've said that incorrectly, Jordan, of Wilson, North Carolina. I've noticed that many conservative confessional Presbyterian churches include recitation of creeds and catechisms in their liturgies. In light of the regulative principle of worship, is there biblical warrant? for this i mean there needs to be more than a warrant there needs to be biblical mandate for this i think Um, that's what he means yeah i know i know i'm just saying i've heard some people categorize this as a religious oath or vow but in my opinion that's a bit of a stretch and doesn't seem to comport with the occasional nature ascribed to such oaths and vows by our confession and he cites 21.5 in addition to biblical warrant is there historical precedent for this practice within the reformed tradition or is this along with corporate confessions of sin and responsive Scripture readings, an example of Presbyterians unwittingly drifting from their rule of worship to adopt a more Anglican approach. Well, that's a pretty provocative <laughs> indictment there at the end about corporate confessions of sins and responsive yeah. Scripture readings. But um, but let's focus on the this question of creeds, confessions, as religious oaths and vows, and, and, and parse this out.
1: We'll start with the biblical warrant, uh, and that is that in the first place, Uh, We have the biblical commandment to make and use creeds. So, for example, uh, 2 Timothy 1. We have the fact that the synagogue service in which Christ would have participated begins with a formal confession called the Shema for the first word, hear, O Israel. We have our Savior telling us that we are to confess him before men, and that seems to be much more in the corporate context of our initial profession of faith, which in fact, the creeds first developed as a part of it. That's some of the biblical background. Now, what Calvin and the reformers did, and it's very important that we understand this, tradition, not all tradition is wrong. They went back and looked at the early church. How did the early church implement the regular principle of worship? And if we're gonna talk about biblical tradition, well, obviously the early church continue what I think was an apostolic practice. By the way, the New Testament is full of these creedal statements, such as 1 Timothy 3.16. Philippians 2 is either a creedal statement or a hymn. uh, And there are other very short, succinct statements uh, like this. So the ancient church developed the creeds as part of the profession of faith and uh, over a period of time. The Apostles' Creed developed, the Nicene Creed developed as a guardian against uh, error and was recited as such. And so uh, when Calvin began the work of reforming worship, uh, he kept the creed. Uh, He both had the creed sung. It's in the Geneva Psalter. And he also um, had uh, it recited in the service. So... um, He, um, in his form of ecclesiastical prayers, he wrote that in saying or singing the creed, God's people testify they all wish to live and die in the Christian doctrine and religion. So when we're summoned by the minister in the Lord's day to stand and raise our voices, one, and to say what we believe as Christians, we ought to do so with heads lifted high and hearts burning with conviction. For in that moment, we're stating the fundamental truths upon which our lives depend We can also point out that the creeds are our link with the Catholic visible church. And when we confess these creeds, we're standing shoulder to shoulder with the church uh, for um, century after uh, century. And so um, it's been a very specious thing that developed. You know, Knox used creeds. The Westminster uh, Assembly, two or three different times, the creed in there, and it was sneaked out by the independents, and for some reason, the Scottish church began to behave like independents, not the Puritan Presbyterians. The Puritan Presbyterians were very much in favor of using uh, creeds, and in the first Scottish adoption of the standards, uh, creeds appended. It's saying now, obviously, the confession follows this. Uh, Some of the great reform writers, uh, Perkins Vitsius, Take two different cultures, one English and one Dutch, wrote uh, beautiful commentaries on the Apostles' Creed. And so I will say it is a weak and bald Presbyterian worship that omits uh, the use of creed. It is the historic practice of the ancient church and the Reformed church. It is only uh, a much more recent practice of a later Scottish development in American Presbyterianism and then Baptist evangelicalism that's left out. So, no, we're not drifting into an Ankin approach, we're drifting into a much richer and, um, I think, uh, reformed approach. Now, the same with corporate confession of sin. Corporate confession of sin goes back through the history of the church. It was implemented um, by uh, Calvin in Geneva. It was used by Knox. Um, And, Even Owen, in his defense of free prayer, doesn't say that all common prayer is wrong. is that free prayer is to be the primary use of prayer that we have uh, in our worship. And so the Reformed tradition actually has both of these things. Now, the responsive scripture reading, I'm not really excited about that. I don't see any usefulness of that. Scripture is to be read as an act of worship, not recited responsively. So, you could argue that the antiphonal nature of the Psalms um, does lay a foundation for some type of scriptural antiphonal recitation or singing in corporate worship.
0: Our next question comes from Sam Morris of Cape Carteret, North Carolina. We got a lot of North Carolina questions today. And we
1: sure do. That's one, two. We got. Well, that's two anyway. Well, no, three. 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 Yeah, three, three. North
0: Carolina. And. Yeah. Um. Do, do, do. All right. And I'm pretty sure one of the anonymous questions was from North Carolina. All right. Can you please comment on whether Professor John Murray's view on the visible and invisible church distinction departs from the Westminster standards? And if so, how? I'm currently reading through volume one of his collected works and on page 31 in particular, he cites. And it's unclear as to whether he simply disagrees with the language traditionally used, as it seems he did with the covenant of works or if he disagrees with the doctrine itself. Now that's a good distinction.
1: Yes, so, Sam, I, re- I went back and reread it. In fact, we're using this as a discussion piece in our ecclesiology course this uh, spring. Um, let's get back to the beginning. Larger Catechism 64, the invisible church is the whole number of the elect that have been or, or shall be gathered <laughs> into one under Christ the head. And in 62, the visible church is the society made up of all such as in all ages and places of the world do profess true religion and of their children. So Professor Murray argues (laughs) that the distinction is invalid. So I think that um, he is at least scrupling the standards at this point and uh, he does not deny the fact that there is a whole number of the elect that have been, or shall be gathered unto one church unto Christ. But he is arguing the Bible never uses the word church to refer uh, to that number. One other background piece, Sam, and that is um, in the proper expression of this, we're not talking about two churches, we're talking about two manifestations of the one Catholic church. One is an infallible uh, manifestation that is uh, not temporal or geographical. The other is a fallible um, expression of the church, fallible because it uh, is never exhaustive and because there will be those in um, the visible expression of the true church uh, that are not regenerate. So it's one church under two expressions. And that's the proper way to think about it. Um, I use the illustration of an iceberg. Uh, An iceberg is barely above the surface of the water. Well, sometimes it'd be highly above, but wherever it is above, it's multiple times deeper. So the true iceberg there is an iceberg, but then it calves, it drops off pieces of ice that are clumped up next to it. So from the distance, the iceberg actually looks larger than it is. So that's the church. In one sense, in any visible time, it might look larger than it is at that time. In the other sense, it never ever could express the comprehensive nature of, of the church. Now, Murray argues that every use of the term ecclesia, which is the Greek word for church, refers only to um, a uh, a specific, church are groups of churches Uh, and the few passages uh, in the um the scriptures that seem to refer to the church otherwise he seeks to dismiss so for example uh, ephesians 1 verse 10 that in the dispensation of the fullness of time he might gather together in one all things in christ both which are in heaven in which our own earth, even in him, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, that filleth all and all. Now, for me, that is a very uh, unmistakable reference to what we're calling the invisible church. Murray says it's not. And I think at that point, his uh, biblicism probably, I mean, I never, rarely ever disagree with John Murray. Uh, But I think on this issue, as with the covenant, that he goes um, uh, beyond scripture and and is here, I think, in contradiction, not in a serious way in terms that it's it's a scruple, but I don't think he's confessional.
0: Thank you, Dr. Piper. Yeah, those are the the two big issues with uh, Dr. Murray. And Sam, really appreciate you bringing that up in this episode. I'm glad you're
1: reading him on the church, Sam.
0: Yeah, very good. Our next question comes from Pastor Michael Mock of Fayetteville, North Carolina. He actually gives us three kind of related questions here, again, about worship. First, is the call to worship binding on the conscience?
1: Um, You know, Mock, I really don't know what you mean by that. Um, There's no way that it binds the conscience because it is a biblical um, pattern, expression, commandment. So nothing that is uh, biblical can bind the conscience. So... Uh, if when the appointed elder or pastor uh, reads God's commandment, he's exercising his authority there in the sense of the keys as of the church. And what he's doing is assembling the church in the presence of God. If you don't want to be in the presence of God, you don't be in corporate worship. Uh, And that says something else about you. So yeah, I said that. That's what I implied earlier was that because it is a biblical commandment, you're not binding the conscience. That's why I don't understand uh, the particular you're not
0: inappropriately question. binding the conscience it's not the word of man binding your conscience it's the word of god which calls you into worship which is right. binding your conscience. most people
1: talk about binding the conscience they're only talking about inappropriate
0: so. i know i think what michael's asking is not is it an inappropriate binding of the conscience i think he's asking does this constitute a a binding of the conscience in substance and i think it is and it's appropriate now, when the call to worship goes out, anyone who hears it must enter into worship. They are conscience-bound to do okay, so. Okay, if that's what he means, I, think, I, don't, right? I
1: don't know how you can read between the lines. Well, um, I mean, I'm just reading the question is the, very simply. Binding the conscience is usually used of uh, improper binding the conscience. If it's interpreted the way you're talking about it, um, well, no, it's the requirement of anybody who's present to have prepared themselves and not to enter into the presence of God at that commandment. And be mindful that's where they are. Yeah. That's how you're reading it.
0: Yep. That's how I'm reading it. Yeah. So we've
1: answered answered both sides of the question.
0: Yeah, we did. Look at that. Two for one special. That's what I'm talking about. I I interpreted that in terms of his
1: next question.
0: Yeah. All right. So let's get to the next one. Does calling an evening worship service unnecessarily bind the conscience?
1: So, again, unnecessarily bind to the conscience. Um, Perhaps, again, he's using it the way you use it, that um, we're going. Well, I I would say, is it go beyond scripture to uh, require people to attend an evening worship service? If that's what he means, No the uh, first place, there's clear scriptural inference for a second service and the clear practice of the Reformed Church for centuries. Um, but secondly, and this is why it's very important when people join a Presbyterian church that we explain to them the vows that they are taking, because they at that point have voluntarily submitted to the authority of the elders to support the peace, work, and purity of the church. And I think it's very important on the front end that we explain to people this means that unless you're providentially hindered, uh, we expect you to be at the second service because of your vow. We believe we have a right to call the service. We believe because of your vow, you have a biblical responsibility to be at the service.
0: All right. Follow up here. And I think
1: did I answer the question the way you're interpreting it there.
0: I, I think so. Yeah. For this question, I think that's right. Because this is, this is where I run aground on the issue as a pastor. If someone joins my church and they're not yet convinced of the biblical inference for an evening service, can I then proceed with discipline against them if they... Because of their vow. If they don't yes. regularly come to the evening right. service.
1: Because of their vow.
0: Yep. And by not regularly coming, I don't mean, you know, having a legitimate um, reason no, for not coming. Uh, they're but, very negligent. But if they're just... You explain to, that on soft the front end and negligent
1: and then yes, if they keep breaking their vow, um you have to um, admonish mm-hmm. them and deal with them
0: but i, I want to be clear with them that hey, I completely understand if you're if you're fatigued in the no, evening well, that's the next question, you know then. So, okay, yeah. yeah. What are examples or categories of acceptable providential hindrances, specifically, I guess, for entering into worship, particularly evening worship? Any resources to direct me how to research this more? And I'm assuming as a pastor who's, who's sorting through, you know, or thinking through this issue, whether or not it's coming up in his church.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know of, of resources. I just know that it's, it's pretty much uh, common sense that if a person lives a good distance from the church, um, unless the church makes some provision, what we did in Houston was we had some families on rotation. We had one family that lived a good bit away. We uh, rotated once a month, having that family in our home on the Lord's day because they themselves were committed to being in the second service. Or the church might, uh, if it's got a lot of people in great distances, it might consider having a, a service, Sunday school, dinner together, service, uh, and that folks go home. Um, but there'll be those that are having to drive. And I, I've met people that actually do it twice on the Lord's Day. They'll drive, you know, in a 90-minute round trip and come back in the evening. But that's not something that I think the session should expect of a family. It's important with respect to Sabbath-keeping, when we think of, and here's your resources, of that which is necessity and mercy, that we don't do things that hinder a person's Sabbath-keeping or hinders their six days of work. And uh, for example, this unnecessary amount of time in the car would hinder both. Um, Or if they are ill, uh, and and just worn out, and they need to uh, stay in on Sunday evening to get rested because of what lies ahead, that becomes a deed of necessity and mercy. So it's all common sense, and what are the purposes then of, you know, does the person regret having to stay in? Uh, Zach and I have talked about situations, let's say a doctor. A doctor is not violating the Sabbath to be on call on Sunday evening and miss the second service. Or if he were up a lot on Saturday night, that he goes to bed Sunday afternoon doesn't go back to the second service. But there's two things. That should never become the regular practice because everybody has rotation. If he's voluntarily taking a rotation that constantly interferes with the Sabbath, he's got a spiritual problem. Uh, And the second is his own heart. When he does that, does he miss it? You know, do I really regret that I'm missing um, a service of God's people? And then, of course, there are those elderly people in the congregation that just cannot drive after dark. And at that point, if the deacons, that should be a high priority with deacons uh, to uh, get them there. But if they can't do that, that obviously is uh, a, uh, a providential hindrance or simply the person They've got enough energy to get to, to one service. I think of dear Mrs. Duncan, who I think normally gets to the evening service. Some elderly people just cannot get up and get going in the morning. And so it's just pastoral common sense, really thinking through deeds of necessity and mercy.
0: Also pastorally, it's a matter of knowing the flock. Um, Well, obviously, you can't have pastoral common
1: sense if you don't know the flock.
0: Tim Whitmer's excellent book, uh, The Shepherd Leader, he has these four uh, relations to the flock that a pastor or an an elder should have, And, and the first one is knowing the flock. You need to be in touch with them in their homes, visiting with them, know their situation, so that you don't then run roughshod over them. If you notice all well, their missing service, they must have a spiritual issue here that I need to address with discipline. No, not necessarily. You got to figure out what's going on. Um, and, and, and be, you know, have it, I think an instinct and impulse for compassion and understanding and charity as you address this particular issue. Um, but it, it's a great question. And it's one that, especially uh, those churches of ours that have two services, stated services on the Lord's day, um, it's a question that, that we really need to face and uh, and think through in terms of pastoral care so I appreciate you bringing it up Michael you do you do use the, um, the language though if you're using it in a technical way of calling a service or calling uh, a service of worship if you're if you're meaning to ask a question regarding called services as opposed to stated services, um, Let us know. So, for example, if a session calls a worship service, let's say for the purpose of um, an ordination or something on a Friday evening, are members conscience-bound to attend that service? That would be a different question, I think, than are they conscience-bound to attend morning and evening worship? And maybe that's exactly what
1: he's talking about. Anytime outside the Lord's Day, no, they're not conscience-bound. If they were to have such a service, it has to be on a voluntary basis. Uh, and no person needs should feel any requirement on the basis of their membership. Uh, membership vows to go, because that becomes, in the mind of many of us, a clear violation of the regular principle of worship. Yeah. So maybe that's what he's asking as well. You're right. That's yeah, why I, said I didn't quite know what he meant.
0: Yeah. No. That that's good. And then, um, you know, certain churches will have multiple morning services or multiple evening services or just multiple services throughout the day that are identical. Um, because of the size of their congregation and, and, you know, having to work with limited space, I think of parish Presbyterian church in Franklin, Tennessee, I think of second Presbyterian church at Greenville, um, other churches where I have dear friends and certainly, you know, if there are two morning services to accommodate a large congregation that can't fit in the building for one service, then that's a different issue as well. You're not conscience bound as a member to go to both of those services. <laughs> um, well, anyway, well, I don't think anybody would think that. Yeah, no, I don't think so either. I'm just putting it out there. All right, Michael, thank you for the question. That wraps up our list of questions for today's episode of Faith and Practice. Um, and that wraps up 2021. It's been an eventful year. I saw somebody recently post something online. It, it feels like we've had three years in one. And, I'm, you know, I thought about <laughs> that. We had about, to make up for 2020. Yeah, I guess so, where, where we lost a year. So anyway... Yeah. Um, it has certainly been eventful, the the kind of tectonic shifting of the evangelical world, at least in America, has, uh, has been both interesting and alarming in many ways, uh, without getting into details on what I mean by that. I think most of my listeners, our listeners will know what I mean by that. But I am very thankful that as we've experienced changes here at Greenville Seminary, um, we've also been able to rejoice in the great faithfulness of God and keeping us as an institution steady uh, and committed to that one thing that this school has always stood for, and that is the glory of Christ in the equipping of men for pastoral ministry. And as our student body grows, we're seeing more and more men who are coming here because they want to be pastors. And so I thank you, our listeners, for your interest in these men, your prayers for them, your interest in our faculty and, and in enthusiasm and earnestness in supporting us. And I ask you to consider to continue doing that into 2022. And um, and certainly if you have any questions about how best to do that, give me a call at 864-322-2717 or contact us at info at gpts.edu. Dr. Piper, thank you for your time today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. As always, it's a a delight to be with you.
1: Thank you, Zach. It's always a delight
0: to be with you. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and Confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu donate. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.